Does Latin count because of the Vatican? No, the, the Vatican is not a member of the European Union. Damn. Does Rom and Romance count in Switzerland? Switzerland isn't a member of the European Union either. Oh, oh no. yeah, of course it isn't. Okay. Welcome to The Fluent Show, a podcast all about loving, living and learning languages. And today we're going to add something special to living and learning languages and that is working with languages. I have got a very distinguished guest on the show today. In the interview we've got Paul Kay who is a field officer for the European Commission representation to the United Kingdom. That's a really long title to say. He represents the EU and campaigns for languages and represents the language diversity and the many, many opportunities that languages can bring you to enrich your life and your career. So I quizzed Paul on many, many things, including how to get a job with the EU, how to get paid for learning languages and his own path into the job that he has now. And in return, Paul turned the tables on me and gave me a quiz on the EU's official languages. I loved it. I loved it. And I hope you are ready to, I don't know, play along, grab a piece of paper <laughs> in this interview. Halfway through, we'll have a little bit of a quiz. It's so much fun. Wow, I am so glad and I'm so grateful to Paul for coming on The Fluent Show and representing languages. It was a really great conversation. Can't wait for you to get started. Uh, before we crack on, first of all, welcome back from spring break. I hope you've had a wonderful two weeks. And secondly, let's welcome our latest sponsor, who you already know because they are back. iTalkie is back. Let me tell you about italki. Italki is the most effective, fastest way to become fluent. It is a platform where you can find language tutors in any language. And I love having italki as a sponsor of the Fluent Show because I have so much experience using it and I would recommend it to anybody who is learning a language. I myself have recently started taking italki classes in my sort of second little target language I'm working with at the moment, which is Chinese. And my teacher is adorable. She's lovely. She's really helpful. She lives in Beijing and we connect via Skype and we organize all the lessons and I found her through italki. So if you want to find a tutor for your target language, and there really are dozens, dozens and dozens of languages available in italki, then go to fluentlanguage.co.uk slash italki. Italki is more affordable generally than offline tutors. You don't have to find someone locally and go up and meet them and find a time that suits you and then find somewhere in a cafe to sit, etc. So if you like the convenience of an online lesson and perhaps the affordability as well, because they do tend to be a little bit cheaper, then give it a go. Go to fluentlanguage.co.uk slash italki. And if you've never used italki before, there's a $10 voucher there waiting for you to help you get cracking on that first lesson. Thank you very much once again to italki for sponsoring The Fluent Show. Now, I don't have anything else left to announce. I just want to go straight into today's wonderful topic, learning a language 
and making it a part of your career, perhaps by working for the EU. So Paul and I in this interview discussed so, so much. I've already given you a bit of a preview and we don't want to wait, keep you waiting any longer. Let's cut straight to the interview with Paul Kay from the European Commission. Paul, welcome to the Fluent Show. Thank you, Kirsten. It's great to be on it. Oh, well, it's nice to have you here. And as I just said in the intro, you're the language officer of the European Commission representation in London, which I think took me a good five minutes to learn how to say. Uh, can you introduce yourself and give us a general idea of what all that means? Yeah, it's a very mysterious sounding title. Uh, my official title is actually a field officer of uh, the European Commission Directorate General for Translation, but that's such a mouthful. It makes me almost sound like a, a foreign agent field officer that uh, we rename ourselves uh, language officers. So I'm, well, I'm, I'm profession, by profession, I'm a translator. And I work for the European Commission's Translation Service, so part of the European Union's civil service. And uh, But I'm seconded from that translation service to the London office of the European Commission, where my job is to do all kinds of uh, language and translation-related outreach work in the UK. So we get involved in lots of things. We get involved in initiatives promoting language learning, promoting multilingualism, but also promoting the language trades, particularly translation, uh, but also to an extent interpreting and, and other aspects of work in languages. So uh, yeah, it's a sort of a bit of a jack of all trades job. We get to do lots and lots of uh, interesting things connected to languages. And the best for me is that I get to work alongside and, and get to meet lots of really inspiring people uh, involved in the language sector. And what about your own background? How did you get into languages? Did you grow up bilingual? How did all that come together? I didn't. I had a, a typical British monolingual Uh, upbringing um, and and I've ended up working as a as a translator for the European Union. A lot of people assume that you need to be bilingual to work for the EU as a, a translator or an interpreter and that, and that isn't the case at all. I don't know that many bilingual people in our organisation. Um, no, I, I, I grew up only with one language, English, um, although my, my mother's Irish And we used to have family visiting and we used to go to Ireland uh, on holiday and they would speak a kind of English that felt very different to the kind of English that uh, I was surrounded by growing up in the northwest of England. So that, that you know, I was already exposed to a kind of a different way of speaking, um, whether you'd call it fully a different language or not. I'm not sure. They're, they're, they're political questions, aren't they? But um, uh, no, I first started learning a foreign language when I got to school at 11, uh, which was French, which is the only language that um, my school had. So yeah, learning French at school. Um, I had a bit of exposure to German when I was young. My father worked for uh, most of his career for, for a German company. So we would have um, German visitors coming to stay at the house. So I was sort of exposed to the language, uh, their language a little bit that way, although I didn't get the opportunity to learn it at school. Um, I've tried to cobble together a bit of a knowledge of German over the years at different times, but I, I, I've never fully got there. But um, yeah, French at school and French was my best subject, but I thought I wanted to be a doctor uh, in my career. So I, I ditched languages and I studied sciences for my A-levels between 16 and 18 and ended up doing um, biology at university. Um, 
but I was very lucky when I when I got there. I, I saw that there were people doing a course which was uh, doing a science major, but which involved doing a year abroad in France or Germany, uh, studying studying their science. And I, I thought that sounds good, and um, I'd, I'd like to. I'd love to do that in France. My French was still quite good, and I went to the tutor and asked if I could get on that course. And he said, "Well, actually, your 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 A level test results uh, wouldn't merit getting on this course at all, but." Actually, somebody somebody's just dropped out of the course, and uh, so I have a I have a gap to fill. If you go to the language centre, and if they say your French is good enough, I'll let you on the course. And that was a that was a massive break in my life, really, because um, I, I did get on that year abroad. I spent a year in in France studying biology, and that brought my level of French up to a to a much better level. Obviously, that I was able then later to use it professionally. So that was that was the start. Of my languages. Mm, so the the classic Erasmus year, then in a way. So and for for listeners who are not in Europe, the Erasmus year is usually when, as a student, you can spend a year abroad at a partner university of your university, and you'll attend courses there. It's usually accredited as part of your degree. So when you come back, all of the courses you take abroad in the other tends to be a European country are accredited and the European Union also funds you with a a bursary so you and um, I used to administer this for for Lancaster Uni that's why I know it for and uh. um, yeah I used to be Erasmus coordinator and so basically the European Union makes a little bit of money available to the university and the university then disperses that to the students and that's the classic Erasmus year and certainly very common that's in right, Germany yeah. less common in Britain Changes lives, yeah. Yes, uh, I mean less common in the sense that there are fewer students here that that use it to go out of the UK. Mm -hmm. There are there are a lot of Erasmus students that come to the UK. Mm. Um, yeah, I, it was the Erasmus. It was an Erasmus year. I, I was one of the one of the very first, uh, one of the very early Erasmus students. I think when I did it, it was just the second year of Erasmus. And uh, well, Erasmus recently celebrated thirty years, so you can start to tell from that how old I am. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was it was a it's a fabulous it's a fabulous scheme, um, and as I say, it's pivotal pivotal in the way that my life has turned out. Mm. Um, mm. It's very common, and I know because you told me before that French is not your only language and not even your only working language. So with French, obviously, you've got, you know, you started in school and like me, in a way, we I feel like having spoken to so many language learners, we're the lucky ones because we enjoyed languages in school and it gave us something. But you also, as an adult learner, continued to study. So can you tell can you tell the listeners what other language you work in and how did you find learning it? Yeah, well, when you start working as a translator for the European Commission, you have to be able to translate from two languages into one other. And the one that you're translating into is usually your mother tongue. But for me, English, I couldn't translate into any other language, not not at the level we need and the level I'd want to do. So the other language that I started with when I started the European Commission was translating from Slovak uh, into English. So my, 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 my two languages were French and Slovak when I joined the European Commission. 
I went uh, so after university, I had a year of sort of kicking around and doing various things, a bit of travel, a bit of temporary work and so on, not really knowing what I wanted to do, like a lot of people. Um, and then I decided I wanted to do some travel around the world a little bit. But I, but particularly, I, I, I wanted to learn another language. I'd started to feel, I think, that languages were something that I wasn't bad at. Um, but I only knew one still, French. Um so I trained to be an English teacher, TEFL, teaching English as a foreign language. I did a month-long training course in London. And the school where I did that course offered anybody that passed their course, they offered you a guaranteed job um, teaching English for a, an academic year in one of their partner schools in Eastern Europe. And this was the early 90s, not long after the Berlin Wall came down and um, the Iron Curtain had disappeared. And a lot of those countries, that part of Europe, their people were starting to learn English and they were really sucking up English teachers, all of those places. And I ended up um, working as an English teacher in Bratislava, capital of Slovakia. And so teaching English during the day, but then uh, threw myself into learning this new language, which I had no connection to, no no family connection to, no knowledge of beforehand. And um, yeah, I, I just I just set about it, really enjoyed it, found it fascinating, um, really interesting language, really interesting structure interesting society at an interesting time yeah. uh, in its in its history slovakia and the czech republic had just split from from czechoslovakia uh, so it was a fresh country um and it was just a really i would say almost intoxicating time that 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 being in a new part of the world where exciting historical developments were happening but also personally uh, l absorbing all that through a new language which I was getting better at each day was a really thrilling experience and I, I, I spent you know within a few months I got I got fairly good conversationally but then at the end of my nine months of the academic year my plan had been to move on and teach English in a different country but I'd got so into the language and the country that I decided I, I really wanted to nail my knowledge and really advance it and absolutely master it um, and I, I knew I couldn't do that if I were an English teacher because people wanted to speak English to me all the time, whereas I was increasingly wanting to speak Slovak with them. Um, but I was really lucky to get a job working in the in the local uh, radio station, so Radio Slovakia International. They oh were, wow! They were, uh, yeah, they were they were yes, I was I became a radio DJ basically. <laughs> um, so the 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 equivalent of the BBC World Service or Voice of America or Deutsche Welle, um, but in Slovakia, they were setting up their foreign broadcasting service in, in different languages, and they had an English language uh, section, and, and I joined the English language section. So I was broadcasting in English, and I had a half-hour program each week that I had to put together, but everything else I had to do in Slovak. So getting my salary, going to the record library, this is, this is well, well before uh, internet streaming, it's before the internet at all. Um, but, uh, you know, all the interactions with the administration, talking to the, the studio uh, guys and things like that, I, I had to do all of that in Slovak. Um, and that really brought the level of the language up, um, you know, f fairly quickly. And I ended up staying in Slovakia for three and a half years. And that's where I started to do some translation. Um, you know, as people started to, to find out there was this English guy who had learned the language to a level and so he could translate from Slovak 
into a, a native level English. And there weren't that many people that had done that. I mean, part of the attraction for the whole thing for me was it, I felt almost like a pioneer. Not not many of the people, even my fellow English teachers that were coming over, and virtually none of them were making a serious attempt to start learning the language beyond, you know, I'll have two beers, please. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, of course, I learned later that there were, of course, there had been people that had that had learned Slovak before, you know, outsiders and you know many people who'd been there during that period of socialism, as they call it, there before nineteen eighty nine. But I, you know, it it felt sort of exciting to be doing something that not many other people were doing. Um, yeah, and that's where I started doing some some translations, um, and then well, I later went into journalism for ten years. But then after that, uh, when I when I applied to work for the European Commission as a translator, I had this earlier experience to mm. draw on doing translation. Yeah, so that that's how I that's how I learned the the Slovak. And so by the time I saw that the European Union was recruiting translators for which you needed these two source languages, two two uh, two EU source languages. Um, I had the French and I had the Slovak, and that's what I started off with. But one of the best things about working for the EU as a translator is that uh, you, we, you get really good language training on the job, um, particularly in the languages where we have a deficit of capacity mm-hmm. to to translate. So in in I'm in the English language department of the European Commission's translation service, and in that department we have deficits in languages like Greek. Um, Estonian, Bulgarian, Hungarian, Polish, these these languages that are not really studied at, at uh, university very much in the Anglophone world, but we, do, we, we need English native speaker level people to be able to translate from those languages. And one of the ways that we, we, we do that is to train our existing staff in new languages. So I've had the, I've had the pleasure of learning Polish um, and Hungarian and Estonian in that way. So language classes as part of working time. Allow me to roll back a little bit um, Mm. because I have so many questions that I want to ask you and I do want to get to um, this because I think that's the dream to get paid to learn languages for I know a lot of fluent show listeners where that's basically dream job. So we're gonna we're gonna get to that but I wanted to just highlight something that you said that stood out to me so much which was Mm. being employable and being more employable than others through your language skills. I think that's something that we very often don't recognize, particularly in the Anglophone world. I live as, you know, like like you, I live in an English-speaking country. And mm. something that, that stands out to me here is that languages, the way we talk about them in school, and I think this is the same possibly in the USA, is it's, it's considered sort of, nice yeah but sort of a little bit pointless you know it's somewhere it's somewhere in the, in the curriculum in the priorities where like i don't know religious education is or something it's just people don't think it's all that important it's not as important as like maths and this this employability that you just described that's not just a 90s thing that still exists and and i've ha- i've experienced the same in my own career is that if you are in a field of candidates who are all qualified somewhat and you speak French or you speak, you know, Slovak, you know, in your case, Slovakia, you're always, you're always going to have a head start. And I just really wanted to mention that because it, it stood out for me, to me from what you were describing. And um, yeah, then 
well, let's let's talk about that for a second before we get to working as a translator for the EU and this, you know, the dream, the dream getting paid to learn languages. Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. I couldn't have put it better. Learning a language will always give you an added advantage over others that that don't have them in so many different ways. And so one of my jobs now as an outreach officer for the European Commission, the European Union, is to go into schools. So we, we go into schools and we, do, we, we, we have a presentation where we try to explain to these kids who maybe are struggling with their French grammar and their, their German vocabulary, ex- trying to explain to them how it will be useful for them uh, in their life or how it can be useful for them. And, and we do that by giving examples from, from our own experiences, but also we've got examples of other people that have uh, kept up the learning of their languages and then how they've benefited them in lots of different careers. I mean, in, in, in business, in, in sport, in the military, in, in fashion, in law, in more or less any, any profession that you want to go into, a knowledge of languages is going to enhance the opportunities that will arise for you. Um, yeah, and it's a, it's a message that, I mean, to, to those of us that are involved in languages and love languages, to us it's sort of obvious and self-evident, but it's not always obvious to, uh, to others, unfortunately. Mm. Yes, that's definitely something I felt. And when I was, I was going to say when I was growing up, but certainly when I was um, sort of in in high school kind of times and thinking about what am I going to do in terms of work and, you know, like, well, what does my future look like? And a lot of people around you when you're sort of 16, 17, 18, you know, you're choosing your whatever university subject, you've got all these thoughts about your future. There is so much there's a little bit of pressure, you know, maybe a little bit much pressure. And there is so much continuous mentioning uh, or the continuous question of what are you going to do with that later in your life? What do, mm. and, like in Germany, was macht man, was macht man mit Französisch? Was ma, you know, I, I would say, I just want to study languages. I like languages. I like English. And people would go like, and what are you going to do with that? And the answer is, you know, the, it, the answers that we give as language students and the answers that we give to language students are usually, oh yeah, translator, uh, possibly interpreter if we know the difference, which is already fancy, um, mm. and and teacher. And those aren't inspiring to everybody. And that's a real issue that I, I don't know how to, how to address. So how do you feel when you go to schools or to universities? Do people, are people more inspired these days? Well, yes, I mean, I, I do talks at universities. They're more targeted at people who are already studying languages or have a knowledge of languages and that's more trying to persuade them to consider working for the for the EU institutions and coming to bring their talents to to work for us but yes going into schools we focus it on the this idea as i'm saying that uh, that, that that knowledge of languages uh, can help you in other career paths you don't have to become a language teacher you may i mean it's an honorable wonderful profession um but it's not the only thing that you can go into if you study languages, nor is it the only thing, uh, nor, nor is translation or interpreting the only thing. Again, many people have a lot of, um, a lot of pleasure and satisfaction from, from going into those professions, um, which are the ones that probably more than others, any others involve using your languages directly all the time. But um, the, you know, knowledge of language is so useful in, in so many other professions, um, not all the time, but when you, there'll be situations when it comes to it, 
where uh, if you have a bit of language knowledge, it will unlock an opportunity um, that wouldn't be available to others that, that don't have the language knowledge. Mm. So that that's what we try to get across in schools. Don't think of it as something that you're studying because you might become a translator, because if they already know uh, they're not going to become a translator or don't want to become a teacher, they might think, well, in that case, I don't need to study languages. Um, we're trying to get them out of that uh, mentality and realize that uh, they, they, they can be useful for other things. And also they they don't need to know the language to um, to a very high level to get a, a benefit from it. Um, they don't have to become absolutely fluent to be able to use it. You know, even a little bit of knowledge might be useful for them at some point down the line. Yeah. And it's we, we so often on the Fluent Show talk about learning as this ongoing project and this whole idea of you know what's now known as the growth mindset is so so important that you don't you know you say you don't have to be fluent and also if you start and you're not fluent that doesn't mean that you won't get fluent on the job in fact the job usually gets you there so yeah. i'm gonna okay i'm gonna come back to now the eu now i'm ready <laughs> mm, okay so you you know you obviously have already told us that when the EU was looking for people who can work from two source languages, that you went through the application process and became a translator. So my first question for you, I guess, is what made you want to be a translator and do you enjoy it? And then after that, let's talk about how to actually get those jobs. Yeah, well, I said about how I had worked as a translator many years previously. Um, and and to be honest, I, ne I never saw it as something that would be a career or profession. I just saw it as a step to the next thing. When I, when I came back from living in Slovakia, I went actually to Lancaster University uh, and Yay. did a <laughs> yeah, and I did a master's degree in environment policy, which I'd become very interested in uh, whilst living in Slovakia, and and that led to me working for ten years as an environment policy journalist, um, initially in London, and then. And then I was offered a move to the Brussels office of the news organization that I was working for. And that's how I ended up in Brussels, capital of the EU, to start with. But I was working as a journalist for, for several years there, using a bit of my French now and again. But mostly I was writing in English and I was mainly doing interviews in English. And I felt like I wasn't using my languages so well. And then I saw that the European Union institutions were recruiting translators and I'd, I had worked briefly as a translator many years previously i was ready for a change of job also i've got to be i've got to be honest i saw it as a way in to the to the organization to the institutions uh, i knew that once you start working for the eu institutions there's an internal job mobility policy so you can work for a translator as a translator for a couple of years and then you can move to a different department and i thought well if if i get in i can do that for a while, but then perhaps I could move to the environment policy department where I'd had 10 years by that point of, of experience as a journalist. So I saw it as a way in, not, not something I was going to do for very long. And that was 10 years ago. Mm. And I, so I've spent 10 years in the, in the commission's translation service. Uh, and it's been far more interesting than I expected. And although, I mean, I may at one point decide to move on internally and do a different role in in the eu institutions but i'm i'm happy in the translation service still as it is and you mentioned um, that you saw that the eu was recruiting or the eu institutions were recruiting yeah so how do you see that where where do you look right so i mean i was lucky in that i was based in brussels but um the main thing uh, the the main 
thing to be aware of is uh, this website called eucareers.eu. If you if you search for just EU careers, you'll you'll get to that website, mm-hmm. and that's that's where the European Union announces all its career opportunities, and it and it has a, a huge wealth of other things there. Information about all the different job profiles we have, not not just the jobs for linguists, so translators and interpreters, um, but all the other jobs we have there, and it's got sample test papers because for the for for our permanent staff. We recruit through an examination procedure, a civil service examination procedure, and so there's all the information about uh, about that examination procedure and the different elements of it, and sample tests, uh, so that people can see what's involved and so on. So yes, I saw it. I I, I saw the opportunity there and um, put my name in. Applied for this competition, as it's called. It's a recruitment competition. We call them, and. Um, yeah, to my surprise, uh, a few months later, I, I I managed to pass all the tests and uh, and became eligible for recruitment. It's a, it's a slightly complex way that we recruit people. It's basically you have a series of tests that which we call a selection procedure, and if you pass all the tests, then your name gets added to a list of people who are eligible to be recruited. Uh, we call that a reserve list, and then when one of our managers uh, in in practice has a vacancy and needs to recruit someone they then go to that list of the people that have passed all the tests and they start looking at CVs and experience and uh, language combinations and so on and th- and then they will offer a job to one of those so our, our managers aren't allowed to just go on the internet you know look at LinkedIn and find somebody that fits the bill uh, they have to take somebody off this list of people that have passed our our recruitment exams and can can people take those exams at any time? And um, not for our permanent jobs. So we we so once a year, every year, usually in the summer months, we we recruit translators, um, and the translators are recruited by target language. So each summer we'll say right. We're, this year we're looking for translators who translate into Finnish or into Estonian or into Czech whichever language it is. So it's not every language every year, uh, but usually a handful of languages each year. And then each language will come up, say, every three or four years. Um, So I translate into English. So in in the year that I saw it, English was one of the target languages, as we call them, that the EU was recruiting translators for. Um, And so I entered that that contest. So yeah, once a a year in the summer, a handful of languages. Mm-hmm. Now, I I took a master's in translation studies. I went to Manchester Union. I did translation studies, and sort of played around with the idea of of you know become a translator and and perhaps even become an EU translator. So I think I took I took legal translation. Mm. Did your lex and all those kind of things. So for listeners, your lex is this database of European legal documents where you can basically go back and look how the name of a specific law has been translated into every single official language of the EU beforehand. So if you've got a document you need to refer to it, you don't translate that again. You kind of go back and you have to look up what it said last time. So so all of those things, did I get that right? You did. Yay. Absolutely, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Passed the test here. (laughs) And, but I I must tell you, like I came out of that and 
you know, there's a lot of talk of, of laws and things like that. And and two reasons or two things stood out to me that or that didn't leave me massively inspired. Number one was really this is this is more about personalities, and I did want to talk about it a little bit, which is this the more I think about it, the more I'm almost convincing myself, this might be wrong, that if you're an extrovert and very gregarious like I am, translation may not be a natural career choice for you because it's yeah, so well, I, I mean, solitary and so detail oriented. Having listened to you on your uh, fluent show uh, <laughs> podcasts, uh, yes, I think you, you're perhaps not uh, a natural translator, but you know, by by personality disposition. <laughs> yeah, I think translators do tend to be on the quiet side, on the introverted side, on the shy side. Um, I'm I'm probably I don't feel like an extrovert, but in terms of looking at my colleagues, I'm probably towards the extrovert end of, oh the, my God. of the range of at the range of personalities that we have. Um, yeah, but but you know there are, there are lots of sort of flam, flamboyant and outgoing and gregarious translators. Um, it certainly it can. I mean, a, a lot of people who work as freelance translators are often working from the um, back bedroom. Mm-hmm. And don't get to don't get to meet uh, other people so often. Um, but in the institutional setting that I work in, where we have well, overall, the European Union has got over four thousand staff translators working for it, just to get across this, you know, the size of the operation. Um, but in in just the building that I work in, when, when I was in uh, Brussels, I mean, I'm now based in London, and I've been for a few years doing a particular role, um, but. In a few months, I'll be I'll be transferring back to our Brussels office, where it's a big office building full of translators translating into and out of different languages, and there's plenty of opportunity to uh, to mix and mingle, and there are social groups and there are conversation tables and things like that. So it it is uh, it's 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 a social that's a sociable experience, it's like a language factory. A little bit, yes. Yeah, yeah, like Lingo HQ. I love it. Oh, okay. So that yeah. sounds exciting. Um, I, actually, now, now, Kirsten, you were talking about uh, passing the test earlier on. We ha- we haven't mentioned this so far. I don't know that you're going to get to it about about the official languages of the European Union. So ah, to yes, get across that's... to listeners, which the the languages are that we actually translate from and into in the European Union. Um, do you know how many uh, EU official languages there are? Well, there are interesting. Oh, quiz, yay! Um, okay, so <laughs> putting you on the spot here, I know. Well, there are. Oh my God, I think I there think are, there Lindsay are and I did a states. European Day of Languages quiz, but that was actually a question. I was thinking there are twenty-eight member states. Let's yeah, not count currently. Britain. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm recording, speak, listeners. I'm recording this with Paul. To we're recording this mid-March, um, and we've no idea what's going to happen with Brexit, so we're going to just kind of. Uh, walk around that elephant very elegantly um, yes. as we are doing right now so let me think okay 20 let's say 27 member states um yes. britain has the same official language as ireland for the sake of the eu because i know that welsh is not oh hang on no welsh is an official hmm okay so i know that eu documents are translated into welsh because i've seen them but not scots gaelic so Oh. Okay, I, I okay. this is very unfair of me. No, no, but, I'm, I'm into but, this. I'm into this. I'm into this. Okay, let me let me um, work this out. Um. <laughs> let's let let's say okay, the twenty seven member states. Um, there there are several member states that share a language. Yes, there are. But then there's like uh, Luxembourg that's got three. Oh, hang on, that's got the same as the others. Okay. Yeah. Belgium has got two. 
right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, we, focus, let's focus on the languages. Okay. Um, what about Spain? Does like Catalan count as an official EU language? No. Okay. It's not one so, of. So yeah, I mean, gonna... it has a particular status, and so do Welsh and Scots Gaelic. Ah. But um, mm -hmm. the, the, the official languages are the languages that each individual member state of the EU has said it wants to have this official EU language status where all of the EU's laws are published in those languages and there is interpretation provided by as default in the European Parliament right. for, for debates and other, and other fora. I'm going to lowball it then. Pardon? I'm going to lowball it then rather than go on, like, we'll talk about indigenous and minority languages later. So we'll save that one. And, yeah. okay, so well, I'll, 25? I'll, I'll tell you, nearly 24. There Aye. are 20, 24 official languages. Okay, wow. You've got 4,000 you, you people want... working in 24 different languages. That's right, yeah. Yeah, so we, so we have 24 language departments. What? So people, plant, tra people translating into those languages. So yes, languages like English, French, German, Spanish, Italian, you know, the, the obvious ones, but there are some less obvious ones as well. Latvian and Estonian, Latvian, I assume. Okay, yeah. Estonian. Slovak, Slovene, huh? Slovak, Slovene. Well, we're already Croatian? on the way. You, do you want to go all the way to the 24 then? Ooh, I don't know. This is, I'm extra, this I'm, is incredibly exciting. I'm writing down the ones you've said and we've got 10 so far. Oh, okay. Well, you've got Swedish and Danish. Yeah, twelve. Italian. We've, have we had Italian? We. I said Italian. It yeah. <laughs> uh, does Croatia is a full member now, right? So Croatian. It is a be... member, and Croatian is one of the twenty-four languages. Yes. We've said Greek. We haven't, but uh, or I, I didn't hear it. That's one, that, that's one of them. That's right. Yeah. Maltese? No, they they have English. Excellent. No, it's Maltese. Is oh, that's wow. one of the twenty-four official languages. So yes, Malta does use English as an official language alongside Maltese, but the Maltese asked for the Maltese language to be one of the twenty-four official languages, and it and it is. Yeah. So we can tell already. I'm going to extricate myself from any any more. Oh, Portuguese. Um, but <laughs> but we can tell already that this is the, the again. So many times on the Fluent Show do we do we get to this point or do we just land at this point because the point just comes and finds us where language is to some extent political, language is representative and it's about identity again and again and again. Mm, yeah. And in that way, the EU, I, I don't, I just think it's such a mark of respect of a big institution like that. Not, I mean, the institution is its member states, right? But I think it is a, still a mark of respect of all the member states to each other to not dismiss a language like Finnish because it's less spoken than a language like German. Yeah, exactly. So Maltese has the same status as English in our system mm -hmm. on that official level. Uh, uh, all the EU laws have to be published in Maltese, just like they have to be published in English and Maltese available as a, a language of interpreting in the European Parliament and so on. So in, in that sense, they're all at the same level. Um, we've got 10 to go. Oh my God. Okay. Okay. Oh, are we doing this? Are we doing this? Okay. <laughs> Polish. Polish. Czech. Yeah. Uh, Czech. What else is on in the East? Right, yeah, there's a few. There's a few in the east. Okay, so we've had Estonian, so Latvian, Lithuanian. I've, I haven't said Lithuanian. 
You're right, you hadn't. But you had said Estonian and Latvian. Yeah. I forget about Lithuanian. There's Lithuania. probably people screaming, screaming, saying, this, this one, that one, the other one that you haven't said yet. Oh, this is mad. Oh, Dutch. Dutch, yeah. All right. So I've said Dutch. Have I said Flemish? I don't know. Is Flemish a different language? I don't know. Flemish it's is not, not an official not, language of Belgian. I got an angry email cons- the other day. So yeah, where does that leave it's, us? It's not considered a separate language in the EU context, no. Does Latin count because of the Vatican? No, the the Vatican is not a member of the European Union. Damn. Does Rom- and... Romance count in Switzerland? Switzerland isn't a member of the European Union either. Oh, oh no. yeah, of course it isn't. Okay. And uh, proper scraping and, now. No, so Romance isn't one of them. <laughs> okay, let me think. I'm really trying to. I'm really trying to imagine the European map here. I did not know I, I, we were going to think do about this. think about Southeast Europe. Well, I've said Greek. Cyprus yeah. speaks Greek. North of Greece. What is north of Greece? Like Montenegro, but that's not. Those aren't member states. Think of some Slavic languages. <laughs> well, we said Polish. We said Croatian. Yeah. We said yeah. Slovak and Slovene. Yes, there's one more. We said Czech. Yeah. Oh man, it's not like Ukrainian a, is an EU language. Use, use, use a different alphabet. Well done. Next door to Romanian. Ah. Romanian, yeah. All right. We've got. We've still got four to go. What? How are you keeping track of this? This is mad. Uh, (laughs) Um. Okay. Have I got all of my Eastern Europeans then? I. I tell you, we've got two to go. Sorry, I was totting up. I've been writing them down. Okay. 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 Oh, I have no clue how hard this is. One of one of them you've almost mentioned. It's in it's in a neighbouring state to the UK. Oh, Irish. Yeah. Oh, see, okay. I'm Irish is Irish is an official language of the European Union. I'm gonna get to this in a minute. I think this is gonna lead us so nicely to the to discussing in the the indigenous languages. But we're not there yet. I I see how I have one more to go. I've not even okay. I've not even got a clue of where to look. We've done all of Germany and all that, all the countries that border Germany. It's an it's an Eastern language, and it's a language like almost no other in the European Union. Oh man, you know that the fluent loves a quiz. Oh, <laughs> oh, hang on. Meant... I've said Estonian. I... I've said oh Hungarian. I... Hungarian, well done. Of course. That is very. That's what was unfair of me to put you on the spot, but you did really well. <laughs> edit this to make me sound really smart <laughs> so 24 but, uh, yeah, you look mad i think that shows the the, the 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 multilingual richness that we're dealing with in the european union so we have to have people that know all those languages and combinations of them mm. and to work for us and if you are somebody that can translate into any of those languages then there's an opportunity for you to come and work for our organization and this is, okay, so a question that I think everybody who is interested in this has got in their head is how good have you got to be? Is there sort of like a you must be a B1 functioning or what is the rule here? Yeah, well, it's a good question. We got we get asked that a lot. Um, a lot of my job I see a lot of the time is trying to persuade people they don't have to be as good, quite as good as they think they have to be. Um 
the most important thing is is writing into your target language. So in my case, English. I mean, that's I think that's the most important thing about an interpreter mm-hmm. is writing your target target language well. So for that, I think you have to be native native speaker or native speaker equivalent. Um, you know, C C two level definitely um, for your target language. For your source language, well. I think for that, you just need to be able to know the language well enough to be able to read it and understand it. Uh, so we've got quite a few of our translators translate from languages where they understand it quite well, but actually they wouldn't want to speak it very much. And some of them say they, they can't speak it, but they can read it and they can understand it because they've learned it to that extent. And we get we, we have a lot of um, tools that help us do the job and as online dictionaries and various other kinds of things like that, of course. Um, so I, I, I think we say something like uh, C1, needing C1 level in your source languages, the languages that you're translating from. Um, mm-hmm. but, but you don't have to be a fluent speaker. You just like your, your no. reading needs to be way up there. Yeah, you're not going to be speaking the language. You're going to be, tra- you're going to be reading it and translating it into Mm-hmm. another language mm-hmm. um yeah so so i translate from a couple of languages now which are where i'm a lot shakier speaking but I, but i'm comfortable reading the texts in those languages certainly reading texts covering the kind of subject matter that we get to translate so related to eu policy making yeah. um so are often letters from minister ministries in the eu's member states and and Often these letters are quite formulaic and they look the same and you start to recognise the structures uh, and the formulations um, across the different languages. And, you, you know, you, and, then, and then you say, well, I, yeah, I know how we say that in English, in my case, English, um, so I can, I can translate it. So yeah. it's, not, it's not as difficult as you might think to, to well, num- number one, to have a, a language at a level that you would need it at to work for us. But then secondly, then to pick up new languages. Uh, to be able to translate from and as i was saying we we have a program of of our translators generally being on language courses to to pick up these new languages so that in a year or two they can start to translate from them mm. and they get those paid for it's amazing they do well they're part of working time um so for instance when i was learning hungarian it was a two-year course and the teacher would come in to our office twice a week and we would just go to a different room in the same building and have a couple of hours class with the teacher um, and then, you know, do our homework. Um, And we also get the opportunity to have um, immersion language courses. So when I was learning Hungarian once a year, we were, we were allowed to go or we were, we were paid to go for a three week period to Hungary um, where we did an intensive language course um and had some immersion and so that you know that was complementing what was happening in the courses in the workplace Mm. so in case i've got any listeners right now absolutely just like instantly whipping out their cv and going pick me pick me this sounds amazing um what nationality requirements do you need to be eligible to be an eu translator and is there any hope for anyone who isn't doesn't meet those um, so for the permanent staff positions of, of the kind that I was talking about, or I've been talking about, you do have to be an EU citizen. So you have to have a passport from an EU country, one of the 20, currently 28 EU countries. Um, who <laughs> oh knows, gosh, who knows by the time gosh. this goes out? Uh, <laughs> 
Yeah, but that that does mean for British people, for instance, um, if they once the UK has left the EU, if they don't have a passport from a different EU country, they would then become el- ineligible to apply for those uh, for those staff positions. Mm-hmm. What about freelancers? Yeah, so we have as well as those people working permanently in offices in Brussels and Luxembourg. Uh, we have a large network of freelance translators. Um, we recruit that freelance capacity through a different mechanism, through calls for tender to, to provide services to us. We've actually got one coming up. It's We're expecting to have a call for those in May 2019. Um, and for those, you won't, well, number one, you only need one language combination. You only need to offer one language pair. Um, and it will be possible to work for us or to work on this freelance basis and not necessarily being uh, located in in an EU country, but the work would have to be submitted through a business based in the EU. So that means that people who are physically living and working outside the EU could still work for us on a freelance basis as long as that's being done through some kind of um, company structure that is registered in the European mm. Union. And just for for reference, perhaps there is another huge international organization, the UN. I don't know how much you know about that one, but I remember when I was doing my master's, that was something that a lot of my non-EU language co co students, <laughs> you know, like the people on my course who weren't working yeah. into or out of EU languages. A lot of people were looking towards the UN, the official languages there are what, Chinese, Arabic, English, French? And Spanish. Something else, yeah, Spanish. And there are six of them. Mm. Do you know how many translators Russian. they Russian invite? is the other one, yeah. yeah. Russian. I don't, I, th- I think they, they I, I don't know uh, much, if anything, actually, about the United Nations system. I know they have their, they have six official languages. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that as staff translators, like us they have to i think they have to have two source languages uh and translate into one target language i don't know how many they have working for them i I guess they would start to uh, rival us in terms of numbers of staff doing that kind of work um i have one colleague who worked in our brussels office he was dutch actually but he but he did work as a translator into english and uh, he moved to work for the un translation service in vienna actually a few years ago um so there's you know sometimes people do move from one to the other but I, but um i don't have any experience of the system mm. myself i'll have a look i'll have a look at uh, see if i can find something on the un translation Unit, the UN Translation Careers, if I can find something, listeners, I'll put it in the show notes, which you're going to find at fluent.show, like always, and then you just do slash and the episode number. Okay, Paul, let's move on to the discussion you previously mentioned already when we were doing our very spontaneous quiz, which I did not know was coming, but loved it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we, we talked about Welsh and how there are documents available into Welsh, but Welsh is not an official language and is not required to be translated into, etc. So this kind of brings me to a question really about we're in the year of indigenous languages this year and the European Union obviously is 
home to lots and lots of other languages, more in addition to the 24 official ones, 24, 24 official ones. So Lindsay and I did last year at the European Day of Languages, which we celebrate quite quite often here on the podcast, we did a quiz of 20 European languages, and some of them were sort of, you know, relatively mainstream Lithuanian, but there were lots of other ones. We, we had Montenegrin and Valencian, and then I looked into other European indigenous languages and unofficial, unofficial languages and endangered languages, and there's just a wealth of them, you know, much more than what we often talk about in the UK with Welsh and Cornish, the Sami, the Frisian, I don't know even where to start. So in this year of indigenous languages, my, I guess let's start with how aware is, how aware is the, the EU or are the institu- EU institutions and are they getting involved? Yeah, well, first going back to that point about the Welsh, um, yes, you will have seen documents in Welsh, EU documents in Welsh, there are, I said there are 24 official languages. There are several other languages that are known as, sometimes known as additional languages or co-official languages. These are other languages that are regionally very strong in the EU, which um, have a particular status institutionally within the European Union. And they are Welsh, Scots Gaelic, uh, Basque, Galician, Ca- uh, Catalan. And for these languages, um, pe- people are allowed, or individuals and governments indeed, are allowed to address the European Union institutions in that language, and they're entitled to a reply in that language. Wow. Um, yes. Um, but that the translation involved in providing that service is, is not provided by the central translation and interpreting services of the EU. It's, mm-hmm. it's done by and paid for by the, the member state. I see. So, so the UK pays so, for the Welsh, for example. Yeah, exactly. So even though on our staff we have various Welsh speakers that would be very easily capable of translating into and out of Welsh, uh, they don't actually get to, to do it uh, much, if at all, because any Welsh English translation or other language translation that needs doing is actually done by the member state. So so those languages do have that that extra status. And for instance, if there's a Welsh or a Catalan speaking minister that goes to a meeting of the Council of Ministers in Brussels, for instance, and wants to use their own language um, to address the meeting, they also have the right to do that. And interpreting is provided for them to do that. Mm-hmm. So so there are those five so-called additional languages that have that extra t- status. So that's where you would have seen that Welsh. And, um, yeah. And is it part of your remit as a language officer or whatever the long title entails, you know, so language officer, is it part yeah. of your remit to raise awareness and support the non-official languages too? Very broadly, very broadly. Yes, my job, I don't see my job as just promoting the 24 official languages of the EU at all. I mean, from my point of view, any language uh, that people are interested in uh, and encouraged to start learning or, or, or know more about is, is great, whether European or any other language. I think, I think knowledge of any language is enriching in so many different ways. Um, in terms of policy, though, it's important first to note that that um, w- what we call competence, responsibility for language policy is, is almost 
exclusively a preserve of the member states, of the national governments. So it's it's not an area where the EU is allowed to be involved to any significant extent, deciding on language policy. Um, yeah. So a lot, a lot of the support for for regional minority indigenous languages uh, sort of comes indirectly, often through um, research support, education support. So, for instance, uh, through the Erasmus Plus program that you've mentioned, which is the the, the successor, the evolution of of the Erasmus program that we were talking earlier, initially just for university student exchanges. In its current form, Erasmus is known as Erasmus Plus, and it encompasses a wide range of educational exchange programs. And there are various programs happening under that that support different minority languages. Just one that I was looking at uh, the other day is about digital diversity, for instance. So there's a research project looking at how minority and indigenous lesser known languages can survive in in the digital age of social media. Mm-hmm. So tr- training people to be aware of, of how they can um, <clears throat> advance their language in the new digital landscape. That's amazing. So the European Union doesn't really make it just to summarize or to to see if i understand correctly the european union doesn't in itself say it is our mission to safeguard and support and revitalize every language of the european union because they can't because that's each country's own area of sovereignty yes but yeah that's essentially it yeah mm-hmm. um however the 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 eu by which i mean the member states uh, mm-hmm. of the eu have come together and and uh, agreed on various policies and statements and resolutions and so on and 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 several of these are about in, increasing multilingualism having respect for for language rights so there's the um the fundamental charter on human rights which Uh, talks about uh, um, not discriminating on the grounds of language. So there there are instruments like that that sort of get at, in a slightly indirect way, um, the protection of uh, minority languages or lesser used languages. Um, so, there's, so there's those big funds like Erasmus Plus. So there's a lot of money in that funding project, uh, fun, funding program that can be used for projects that, that do um, safeguard minority languages. Um, there's something called Creative Europe, which is the European Union's uh, support fund for the creative industries, which include things like uh, funds to support literary translation. And as part of that, uh, there is support for the translation of minority languages into into other languages. So people become aware of the, the literatures of other languages and so on. Mm. Um, but then at a sort of a Uh, you know, a, a more um, sort of perhaps a smaller scale level. So people like me, whose job is to do linguistic outreach in the UK on behalf of the EU, and my colleagues doing the same job in the different offices of the European Commission around around the EU, we do we do little things where we're trying to raise awareness of these other languages. So one one project we've, we're doing at the moment, which I really like, it's something led by our Vienna office, my colleague Claudia Kropf there. Each year, she puts together a, um, we together put together a, um, a collection of translations of different classic 
children's literature titles into various languages. So she decides, okay, this year we're going to do Pinocchio or whatever it is. This year she chose Alice in Wonderland. Mm-hmm. And then the, the different people like me who are diff- based in the different countries, we then get, we source translations of, of that book, whatever it is, into different languages, the different languages of our country. So I've just been getting the ones for our, our country. So as well as getting the, the English original, I've bought translations into Manx, into Cornish, into Welsh, Scots Gaelic, but also into Scots. Um, I, I've got a translation also into Cockney rhyming slang, believe it or not. There is a translation of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland into Cockney rhyming slang. That's so cool. Yeah, there's a, there's an amazing uh, an amazing website called uh, Evertype. It's a publisher called Evertype, mm-hmm. and it's a it's a guy who lives in Scotland, and his mission is to uh, provide and produce translations of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland into lots and lots of different uh, minority languages. And it's he's got, he's got so many versions. I didn't have enough money to buy all of them, but I got the main uh, the the main indigenous languages of the UK. So. These are currently on display at our office. And what happens is we've got about 30 different language versions and that will grow. So we've got them all the other official languages, I think, are in there at the moment. And then these get sent around the different EU capitals for display in those countries. So that way, you know, people people get to be exposed to languages like Manx and Cornish uh, that they might not be otherwise. Yeah. Um, I've got my, my colleague uh, Hugo, who's in our office in uh, The Hague in the Netherlands. He did an event for European Day of Languages last year where he does something called a speak dating. Have you heard of that? I have not. It sounds it's, great. Uh, yeah, I think it's it's sort of like speed dating, but for languages. And uh, he sent me a list of the languages that, uh, that, that he did the speak dating for last year, and they included Low Saxon, um, Bilts, which is a language I'd never heard of, but also Nenets, Yakuk, Papiamento, Kashubian, Greenlandic. So, oh my yes. God, the dream, we, we, the actual dream has just <laughs> become reality. This is so great. I'm going. <laughs> so, um, yeah, well, get in touch with our colleague Hugo. He could do, he could sort out a speak dating session for you. The next European Day of Languages. Aww. I organised an event for the last European Day of Languages last year, 2018. At, at Europe House, where we have a, a small venue where we can put on events. And we did an event focusing particularly on the UK's indigenous languages other than English. So we, we had speakers talking about um, Ulster Scots, Scots, Welsh, Cornish, uh, and so on. Um, it's a really good event. Mm. So, so, in other know, we, words, we, we, the EU we, does we do, do yeah. something. Yes, yes. Well, I we've coming we're coming roughly to the end of of the time we have for an episode and we we've covered a lot barely the start of it. So, listeners look out for about 6 million links in the show notes and this is just so so exciting and I'm so glad that we we started this conversation about the European languages. Like we mentioned before, we're recording about 2 weeks before Brexit, although Brexit date may move and, you know, we we don't know. We don't know. It's just life now. And 
we do, you know, we are going to keep an eye on this. And I would love to hear from you. And no matter where you are listening, because I know lots of you might be listening in the USA or you might be listening outside the European Union, whether this is this has been an interesting discussion for you and whether you are motivated and encouraged to perhaps become a translator or if you are crazy outgoing uh it, there is always interpreting <laughs> which is a little bit more people focused and just in general there are so many language jobs so while i wrap it up paul i just want to thank you so so much you've given me six million ideas for various things that that we can do to to promote languages and i'm just so appreciative of the things you know Did, I want to say that the EU does, but there's a really important point to be made that the EU isn't is not actually a thing in itself. It's actually just like the member states getting together and agreeing stuff. So in a way, it's that the European countries in the EU do. Uh, there's obviously more to be done, but that's always the case. And yeah, I guess all it remains to say is for you to hopefully come back sometime. Yes, I'd love to. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for creating such an interesting podcast, you know, that goes into all these different areas of language and is getting that same message out that it's uh, it's about the joy, the pleasure, the usefulness, the mind expanding possibilities that you get from from learning other languages. That's so well said. Yeah, the mind expand. I love that. The mind expanding possibilities of languages. All right, that's my episode title there. Paul. I'm going to, I always sign off with guests in the same way, like on University Challenge, which is goodbye from me. And then you can say goodbye in whichever language you choose. So listeners, thank you so much for listening. It is goodbye from me. Goodbye. And goodbye from Paul Kay. Thank you for listening to The Fluent Show. Don't forget that you can send us your comments and questions to be answered on the show to Kirsten, that's K-E-R-S-T-I-N, at fluentlanguage.co.uk or you can find us on Twitter at The Fluent Show. We're always so excited to hear from you. We read every message. Don't forget to review us. See you next week.